Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning in to our church's podcast. This week's sermon is from our series, The Core, where we are taking a look at the values of our church stands on. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. We're going to continue in our series called The Core. And uh, last week we had a special day and we covered two of our core values, which are uh, leadership and service. And we ordained a couple of young men into uh, deacon ministry, and that was a special day in the life of our church. And one of the things that we, uh, that we brought out in that was that Scripture says uh, for a deacon not to be of much wine. And, and we raise the bar a little higher and we say no wine. And so I just want you to know why. Uh, one of our core values being leadership, why is our, our leadership, we have an expectation, we have a zero alcohol policy. And I'm going to explain why. Because we live in a world where this is not a popular subject. In fact, you can find churches, a lot of churches in our neighborhood that wouldn't take the position that we as a church and that I as a pastor take. And my, my stance is the same as Brother Mike's over at our uh, Clinton campus. And uh, it, it, it's, it's more popular. It's, it's easier to teach another view. But I want you to know why we take the view we do. And uh, you can take the view that you would like, okay, but uh, you will match our view if you want to have a leadership position. It's just simply that, that simple. And so we're going to talk about it today, and, and it's called uh, Leadership, Alcohol, Permissible versus Profitable, okay? Permissible versus Profitable. And so I'll begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, to kind of lay the foundation for our view. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, everything's permissible, not necessarily profitable. All things are lawful for me, he says, but I will not be controlled by anything. So today's message is about beverage, alcohol. Alcohol is a big problem in our world today. In fact, I, I did this in the early service, and I just want to ask a simple question. If you uh, have been affected negatively by alcohol in your life, maybe somebody you work with, maybe a family member, if you've been negatively affected by alcohol in your life, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to look around. It's very, very common, okay? And this is the church, man. We're supposed to be, you know, removed from that, protected from that. No, it's in the world. And so I want you to understand that, that alcohol and its problems has not been, it's not a new thing. We, we didn't create this in the 21st century. In fact, it's inception. The first time we find alcohol in the Bible, we find Noah, who was a man uh, that did amazing things. He, he, he was part of the, de the deliverance of, of mankind at the flood. And after the waters had receded, he built a garden, he built, built a vineyard, and wine was, was, was created. It began. And shortly after that, he becomes inebriated, and he's found in a drunken stupor in his tent, buck naked, okay? So right out of the chute, we see this could be a problem. Not only that, but his sons see him in the tent, and Ham in particular, uh, Sham and Japheth turned their backs, but Ham went in to see him. Now, we don't know what happened in that tent, but whatever it was, whether it was just to see his father's nakedness or whatever, he was under a curse, and so would the, his descendants be. So it's a big problem. And so initially, we should say, okay, you know, take heed, Wake up, take the blinders off, and see that this is a potential problem. Now, many people won't agree with what I 
what I teach you today because they want to believe what they want to do is biblical, okay? And so I want you to know that I, I'm a minority when I say we don't need alcohol in our life. I'm a minority, but I will die a minority. And you will not convince me otherwise. Now, you don't have to believe what I believe, but you have to know why I believe what I believe and why I teach what I teach because I'm the pastor and Lord willing, I'm going to be here for a long time. Okay? And, and so I want you to know. Now, most of the world wants to believe another view, but I want to tell you the number one reason they want to believe another view. One is because it's, it's so much easier to drink alcohol than not to drink alcohol. I'm going to say that again. It is so much easier to drink alcohol than it is to not drink alcohol. If you agree with that, say, okay, I agree with that. Because the whole world's wanting to do it. And the whole world's promoting it. So it's easier. It's always easier to go with the flow rather than to push back. College students, teenagers, I want you all to push back. I want you to push back because I want to tell you something. In my life, the moment that I said I'm going to push back against all this stuff, why? Because Kendra told me if I didn't push back, she wasn't going to be with me. Okay? I had a motivation. Okay? When I started pushing back, and, and it's not judging Listen to your pastor. I am not judging you. I don't have a robe on. I don't have a gavel. I'm not a sin police. I'm not a killjoy. I'm not hunting to mess up your life. I'm your pastor. And it is motivated by a love for every single one of you and those who are going to get here before long. Okay? I love you. And this is the motivation of my heart. Secondly, the reason it's such a big deal, because it's, it's, it's motivated and moved by the almighty dollar currency. Because alcohol is huge in America. Let me tell you how huge. Beer in America. Ale. $108 billion. The average size serving is 12 ounces. The average beer contains 4 to 5% alcohol. That's why they say a 12 ounce, a 12 ounce serving. Now, just the other, the other day we were having lunch. My brother was with me and Kyle and Joe were with me and this guy was sitting at a table next to us and he ordered a beer. It was, like a, it was like a keg. It was this big. My brother looked over and said, that is a big beer, you know. And before we had left, he, had, he was on his second one. And he probably, he's an older guy, probably went out and got in his car and drove home, okay. Now I want you to understand, okay, the average size, serving size is 12 ounces, okay. There's a reason for that, and I'll explain in a minute because it has 4 to 5% alcohol. Next, wine in America, wine. Now this one's going to get a lot bigger because they've shoved the milk, the bread, and the tomatoes aside so they can make more room for wine, okay, in the grocery store. This one's going to get bigger, but wine in America, $60 billion. The average of most Beaujolais, 125 to 13% alcohol. Most Chardonnays, 13 to 14% alcohol, which didn't even exist in the Old Testament. I'll get to that. The average serving size is 12 ounce. Excuse me, it's 6 ounces. Because the alcohol content is greater. Thirdly, distilled alcohol liquor, which didn't even exist. Distillation process developed really in somewhere between the 8th century A.D. Okay, that's when it kind of came about. It was perfected in the 12th century. This stuff didn't even exist historically in the Old Testament. But in America, it's $220 billion. Average size? 
an ounce and a half. Why? Because gin has 35 to 40% alcohol, vodka 35 to 46% alcohol, whiskey and tequila 40 to 46% alcohol. Now in America, the police force, the state would say, if you have any of those particular flavors, whether it's beer or ale, wine or liquor, at those 12 ounce, six ounce, and ounce and a half rates, if you have three of those in an hour, you are inebriated. You don't need to be behind the wheel of a car or you'll be charged with driving under the influence, okay? Three of those, any, any of those flavors that you might choose, okay? Now, most people don't know how to do this thing. So it, it becomes a wreck in their life. Now the reason they established these rates of consumption to determine where you're inebriated, listen to me, is because inebriation begins after the first drink. Now I'm, we're not going to talk about today alcohol as a, for medicinal purposes. Okay? We're not going to talk about that. Because why? Because Paul told Timothy, hey, have a little wine for your stomach. This was long before the Rexall, the Walgreens, the CVS, the Walmart, every other pharmacy on every street corner in America. Okay? So this is what they have for medicinal purposes. We're not going to argue for that because that's like arguing that abortion is okay because of rape and incest. It's universally okay. We're not going to talk about drunkenness because everybody would agree drunkenness is a sin. Because you hear this question all the time. It doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. But it does say drunkenness is a sin. You know that, right? Drunkenness is a sin. If you know it says that in the Bible, say, I know. Okay, that's most of you. Now, I would contend, I would argue that we have to be very, very careful because quite honestly, Kendra's grandmother, who's now with Jesus, got it right on this. She got it right on a lot of stuff. She was cool. This is what she said. We were talking about alcohol one time. She said, I'll tell you what I believe about alcohol. I said, what's that, Granny Cleta? She said, if it takes you 10 beers to get drunk, and you drink one beer, you're not sober, you're one-tenth drunk. That's actually a good angle. And, and you don't, may not like it, but it's the truth. When you begin to drink alcohol, it instantly begins to change your blood system. And when your blood system changes, your thinking changes. And so today our goal is to just help you understand what we believe as a church and why. Why we expect our leadership pastors, deacons, teachers, ministry leaders to take a 100% zero tolerance abstinence view on alcohol. Now in the Bible, the Greek word is methuskathe, okay? And it means intoxicated. When you see the word drunk or drunken or drunkenness in the New Testament, the Greek word's methuskathe, okay? And it means anything that inebriates, anything that intoxicates, or anything that causes drunkenness, okay? That's the word. And so we have to agree that there's a risk anytime we take any of it into our life. So you say, well, Brother Joel, I just don't know, man. I mean, why, why would you choose to, to make a policy that says leadership does not partake in alcohol? I'll give you one scripture. This message is devoted to it because it's, I think it's very clear. Listen to what Proverbs says in 31.4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to crave strong drink. Okay? This was inspired by God. It's part of the canon, canonized scripture. It's not for leaders or rulers to drink wine or to crave strong drink. Therefore, we take a position that says let's just stay away from it. Now, let me just be real honest with you, okay, before we go any further. 
This is not the only thing the Bible warns about in the Bible. The Bible warns about overeating. Hello. Okay. The Bible warns about stealing. The Bible warns about breaking the speed limit or obeying the laws of the land. They're all sins. But most of those other ones never develop a position or a posture that wants to convince the whole world that it's acceptable behavior. Nobody's arguing that, hey, we all need to overeat. We need to eat more and more and more. We need to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Nobody's arguing that. Nobody has that campaign. Stealing is okay. Let's all steal something. Let's all be kleptomaniacs, you know. Let's do it. Why work when you can take what somebody else has worked for, you know. Nobody's doing that. But this thing about alcohol, man, it's driven. It's driven to connect you into that world. Now, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever felt a lot of compulsion, a lot of draw into the world to consume alcohol? If you have ever felt that, even if it was 20 years ago, say, I have. Well, listen, your pastor is not far removed from that. You can't say, well, pastor, you don't understand. You're a preacher. You hang out with Kyle and Joe, and you you wouldn't have hired them if they drank, so your life's easy. I've been in your world. I was in sales for years, traveled all over over the United States, okay? I've had sales managers of companies that we represent because I turned my wine glass upside down and said, oh, well, you got religion. You're not going to drink with us? No, I've been there. I felt that. I know. I've been on the golf course hundreds of times at sales meetings, and everybody literally is drinking but me, okay? But listen, I made the decision. That's what I chose, and you get to choose. Now, we're going to talk about why we make the, choose, the choices that we make as we go along. So we're going to look at four reasons that I think we should all choose abstinence. I'm going to give you four reasons why we as a church leadership will, in fact, choose abstinence. Number one, on your worship guide, it says statements. The statements of trustworthy leaders who have a position that came along before we did. I'm not going to share them all because we we have a limited amount of time, but I'm going to read uh, Adrian Rogers. He's a hero of mine. He's with the Lord now, pastored a huge church, Bellevue, out in Memphis. This is what he said. The most dangerous drug in America is beverage alcohol. Number one, because of its acceptance. Number two, because of its availability. Number three, because of the effect that it has upon our hearts and our lives and the misery that it brings. He goes on and says, moderation is not the answer to the liquor problem. In most cases, it's the cause of it. You say, well, yeah, he's an old guy and he's dead, you know. Okay, J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer pastors a megachurch in the Carolinas, multi-site. He was nominated to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He wrote books. He's really, he's really relative. He's really connected. He's young. Um, he wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Life. Now, that sounds a little edgy. And he's talking about why we shouldn't just pray for this salvation. We should, we should receive this gift. It's much bigger than asking Jesus into our life. So he's very relative. Listen to what he says. He says, it is clear that the first drink endangers many into alcoholism. In fact, he says, research tells us that one out of seven people who drink will become alcoholics. Then he says this, I wouldn't keep a dog in my house that bit one out of seven people who came to visit. And I won't play around with a drink that has a solid chance of sabotaging and destroying my life or the life of someone I love. John MacArthur, another great leader in our church who hadn't messed it all up. He's a theologian. He says an alcoholic, all, excuse me, all 
Alcoholic beverages used in our culture actually fall under the biblical classification of strong drink, and therefore all of them should be forbidden. The least ratio of water to wine mixture in the Bible was three parts water to one wine. That produced a subalcoholic drink that was two and a half to 2.75% alcohol. Normally, however, the ratio was even higher dilution to water, up to 20 to 1. He says there's no biblical support for Christians drinking alcoholic beverages of our day. Now, now I want you to understand this. Listen, in the Bible, we'll talk about it in just a minute. Scripture, it talks about wine. We'll talk about that word, what it really means. But I want you to understand something. The Old Testament, the most alcohol they would ever achieve is 10 to 11 percent alcohol. And that is right before it sours and turns to vinegar. Okay? It's, it's, the, it's the last step before it turns to vinegar. Because sugar uh, is, is replaced by the fermentation process. So 10 and 11% is the most you could get without adding to it or without distilling it. Okay? And it didn't exist in the Old Testament. I'm going to read you one more. This is an old guy. He had a position on alcohol. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said, alcohol has many defenders but no defense. So we've got statements of great people, okay? Now I want, listen, you could bring me statements of other great people who believe differently. I don't really care, okay? They're not pastoring the church at Sturkey Hills, okay? I'm pastoring the church at Sturkey Hills. I have a, a responsibility and a burden that I love and I embrace, and that is to love you all as people in this body, the local church of Sturkey Hills, okay? He has given me that. He has called me to do that. And so our position will be one of love and not liberty. Love always trumps liberty. Now we'll talk about it a little further. Number two on your worship guide, statistics. The statistics of culture will also help us develop our position regarding alcohol. I'm not going to read them all. I got hundreds. You, you got to know this. I told Kendra four days ago, Kendra, I'm in trouble. She said, why? I've been researching this for three weeks. I had 54 pages of notes. You all would have missed lunch and dinner, okay? I told her, I said, I gotta distill it down, okay? And so I, I had to get rid of a lot of good stuff, but I kept a few. Statistics, 41% of all fatal traffic accidents are alcohol related. Now, you could make the silly argument, yeah, but 100% are related to automobiles. Are you going to do away with the cars? Shut up. That's ignorant. Okay? If I hurt your feelings, you can come and apologize at the end. Now, here we go. Deaths caused by alcohol is the same as if a jet plane, a 727, crashed every week. Now, if a, if a jet crashed every week, it'd be on the news every week, right? You never hear about it. All of the deaths because of alcohol. 50% of all child molestation cases, alcohol related. 34% of all murder, alcohol related. 52% ladies of all rape, all rape cases, alcohol related. 4 million young people, 4 million people in America under the age of 18 are already alcoholics. 40 million American adults are problem drinkers in America. An estimated 88,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually, making it the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States. 
10,000 traffic accidents. That's one every 51 minutes. That's 28 a day in our country. The economic burden of alcoholism in America, $250 billion. 696,000 students between ages 18 and 24 are assaulted by another student who has been drinking. 97,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 report experiencing alcohol-related sexual assault or date rape. One in four, 25% of all college students report academic consequences caused from drinking. They include missing class, falling behind in class, doing poorly on exams or papers, and receiving lower grades. And I finish with this one. Drinking alcohol increases your risk of cancers of the mouth, esophagus, pharynx, larynx, liver, and breast. So we've got statements of great leaders. We've got uh, statistics in our culture. If I didn't have anything else, I would hope that that would be enough for you to look, raise your head up and say, you know what? I kind of bought the lie. I kind of bought the lie that this is a good prospect, a good plan. This is a good addition into my life, okay? I hope at least you just wake up, just hold your head up and say, okay, maybe based on, you know, some quality statements, maybe based on statistics, I will at least reevaluate my position regarding alcohol. If you don't, I don't judge you. If you don't, I'm not the sin police lurking in the shadows to see what you're drinking. If you don't, I love you none. If, if you don't agree, I don't love you any less. I am mandated to love you as a Christian. I'm mandated again to love you as your pastor. But let's go on. Number three is Scripture. The Scripture that we choose to live by. The Scripture that we choose to embrace. Now let's talk about wine. Let's talk about wine. In the King James Bible, there are 637 references to drink or drinking wine, okay, to the, to the drink called wine or drinking wine, 637. There are 11 different words in the Hebrew that refer to this idea of wine or drinking wine, 11 different Hebrew words, and they all mean something distinctly different. Let me give you three. Yayin is one. Yayin occurs 140 times, and it can be any level of any wine, but it is always a diluted drink. Number two, shikar, 23 times. It is strong drink, never diluted. Number three, tirosh. Tirosh appears 38 times. It always means grape juice, new or sweet wine, fresh off of the vine. Now, all of those, whether strong and undiluted, whether strong and diluted, whether either or, or whether new, new uh, juice from the vine, all of those appear in the Old Testament have a different word. When you get to the New Testament, all 11 of those words go away, and we have one word for wine called oinos, O-I-N-O-S, oinos, and it means all of those. So based on context, based on what else we know, then we get to make a judgment call. We get to determine what it is that it's talking about. Now, regarding the one who drinks wine in the Bible at varying levels or degrees of fermentation, this is what Scripture says. Isaiah 28, 7 and 8. They stagger, they stumble, they're confused, they totter, and they vomit. We have all know that guy, right? That girl. Not a good plan. Okay, lingered too long over the glass. 
Number two, Proverbs 23, 29 through 33, warns us that it will cause emotional, social, physical, and marital problems. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Proverbs 23, 35, they have struck me. <laughs> this guy has obviously gone way too far. It says, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. And then he says this, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? <laughs> right? Listen, God knows the drunk just like he knows the thief, just like he knows the murderer. He knows us all. He knows everything. And so this is nothing new, okay? This has been around. Romans 14, 21 says this, it is good neither to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Don't do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. Now, referring to a position about alcohol consumption, Scripture gives us a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Numbers 6.3, Old Testament, you shall separate yourself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes. Isaiah 5.22, woe to those who are mighty heroes at drinking wine and men of strength in mixing alcoholic drinks. Romans 13, let us live and conduct ourselves honorably, not in carousing and drunkenness and immorality. Judges 13.4, therefore beware and drink no wine or strong drink. I can show you a dozen more scriptures that warn us about alcoholic beverage. Sure, you can show me a few scriptures. You're saying, well, Brother Joel, you're leaving one out that says wine brings joy. If you drink so you will be happy, you got a problem. Two reasons. One, you're addicted. Two, you've replaced Jesus with a bottle. That's an insult to King Jesus. All right? And, and so, so, so we've got all this stuff. We've got statements. We've got statistics. We've got scripture. Now, this is where it really gets serious. All of that means absolutely nothing compared to what we can learn about our Savior. Because if you're here today and you're a Christian, you want to be more like Christ. And I'm going to show you what I believe to be true about the life of Christ in dealing with alcoholic beverage. First of all, he had a particular view of others who did not drink. Secondly, he was involved in this controversial idea of communion or the Last Supper. Thirdly, which is the greatest, and I'm going to save it for last, the infamous wedding of Cana where Jesus was the first great bartender. Don't ever say that in my presence because I will jump in your face. All right? Jesus was not a bartender. Never was he a bartender. All right? Don't say that. If you've said it, ask for forgiveness, okay? Now, first of all, his views of others. Jesus said of John the Baptist, his forerunner, I tell you among those of women, none is greater than John. Jesus elevated John the Baptist and spoke of him as the greatest man who has ever walked on this planet. You say, what does that have to do with alcohol? Well, an angel of the Lord spoke to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, and he said this in Luke 1.15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his 
birth. Now, I'm not saying because he didn't drink, he was the greatest man who ever walked on the planet, but I'm saying the one person that Jesus chose to say, this is, this is the trump card, this is the one that was the best of all women, he didn't have it in, in his life. So therefore, I think we've got evidence that we don't need it in our life. Let's go to the next one, the Last Supper, the communion. I want to say this, many, 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 many churches around our country and around our world will have communion on any, any given Sunday, and they will serve a fermented wine. They will not serve juice. We serve juice. Now let me explain why. First of all, on any given day when we're having communion, we could have anybody in our group, maybe more than one, who have struggled in the past or currently struggling with alcohol addiction. We won't do anything to cause them to relapse and go into that world of misery. We won't offer that. Number two, um, there's some churches who when, when the communion is finished and there, there's leftover, you know what they do with the leftovers? Pour them down the sink, right? No. The priests get together and drink it all. Now there's a good plan. What if y'all came over here on the Monday after communion? Me, Kyle, Joe, JD, Carol, you know, we're just looped waiting for a church van to take us home, okay? It would be unacceptable, okay? So we don't, we don't have it here. Now I want to, you say, well, that's just a decision you've made. Yeah, it is, based on Scripture. Listen to this. If you read about the Last Supper, if you read about it in Matthew 26, 29, you'll find it. If you read about it in Mark 14, 25, you'll find it. If you read it in Luke 22, 18, you'll find it. It does not refer to fermented wine. It refers to always, without exception, fruit of the vine. Fruit of the vine is pure, it's new, it's unchanged by the fermentation process, it's freshly squeezed. That's what they had, and that's what we have. Now, let's get to the big one, right? The first miracle Jesus ever performed. How many of you have ever heard somebody defend their position regarding alcohol by saying, well, you know, the first miracle that Jesus performed was turning the water into wine. Anybody ever heard that one in defense of alcohol? Let me warn you, don't ever use that as your defense anymore, okay? You have no legs to stand on. And I will show you today it's an insult to your King Jesus, okay? Now, here's the deal. This is the greatest argument ever given of why it's okay for a Christian to drink, okay? There's moderation, there's liberty and freedom, there is all of that stuff, but this is the greatest one. After all, Jesus did it, so it's cool. Well, you remember what I said about the Old Testament having all of these Hebrew words, the New Testament having oinos? We don't really know what Jesus drank. Listen, I don't know when, they, when those pots were filled with water, I don't know the alcohol content of what was in that jar because I was not there and I didn't have a whatever the meter is that they use to check alcohol content, hydrometer or whatever it is, okay? I don't have one. I don't have a sample. We can't run it through a test, okay? You don't know and your friends don't know and the scholars don't know. So let's just call it what it is. Nobody really knows what was in those pots, but I want to paint out the story again so you can kind of have a pretty good idea of what is and what is not in the pot, okay? And it goes like this. We, we know the story, right? 
Jesus and his boys, the disciples, are invited to a wedding, right? They go to the wedding, and then they're having this big Jewish wedding feast, which is really cool. Party on. When, when, when they're there, all of a sudden, Jesus' mom, Mary, comes over to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. Jesus gives this real funny response. He goes, what does that have to do with me? Mary gives even a funnier response. She looks at the disciples and says, just do whatever he tells you to do. She knew, you know, how this thing played out. So scripture says that he tells his disciples, go get those pots and go fill them with water. Now, based on a range that they give in scripture, we know, we can conclude with accuracy that there is an estimated 150 gallons of oinos, wine, produced at the wedding. What is oinos? It can be 10% fermented wine. It can be fresh juice right off the vine. We don't know, okay? But there's 150 gallons, okay? Now, why is he even given the, 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 the request to come up with more wine? Why? You know why. Because she tells them they were well drank. That's what it says. They had well drank, okay? In other words, all that the, all that the uh, bridegroom had for the wedding was gone. So it was like party on at this wedding, right? We don't know what they drank either. We don't know if they took a paste. That's why they diluted it. That's why they, they diluted it and boiled it down to a paste so that they could preserve it from one harvest to the next. They would take wine, they would boil it down to a paste, put it in a container, put it under water, put it in a cave and keep it cold. Okay, and then they would dilute it as they needed it. They would take wine if they didn't boil it to a paste. As it got fermented, they would dilute it, depending on how much alcohol it had in it, so that people wouldn't get intoxicated, okay? So, so we don't know what they had, but whether it was strong or whether it was weak, they were well drank, okay? And they were out. So Jesus says, go down there and fill those with, with, with uh, water, and watch what happens. Okay, it turns into oinos, wine. Now I want you to understand, 150 gallons of wine that is, that is based on 128 ounces per gallon. You remember I said that a glass of wine, the, the typical serving size is about six ounces. So they had about 3,200 servings of wine that Jesus made. So man, he just he made a bunch of stuff, right? What did he make? What did he make? I told you already, we don't know. But I want you to, to know why I think it was not alcoholic at all, and I think logic makes sense of this. Because remember we said that in our state, our government says that if you've had three drinks in an hour of any of those flavors, whether it's liquor, beer, or wine, you are intoxicated enough that you shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car, right? I think Jesus knew what intoxication was. That's why he had spoken about it throughout his word, and he is the word made flesh. I, I believe that Jesus knew what doctors only recently discovered that if you get pregnant, if you are at inception, when, when inception occurs, if you've been drinking, it increases the likelihood of a birth defect. I think Jesus knew that if you are pregnant during the nine-month term and you consume alcohol, your baby is at risk of alcohol, fetal alcohol syndrome or whatever that's called, that it's risky of birth defects. I think Jesus knew that alcoholism was a problem. I think he knew that alcohol was addictive. I think Jesus knew every bit of that. Okay? And so what we have is Jesus making 3,200 potentially servings 
of wine. Now, you can make the argument, well, hold on a minute. Yeah, Jesus knew that. So Jesus had to establish some, just some easy guidelines. First question, Jesus came over. He said, anybody in here pregnant? I already know, but I'm looking for volunteers that would tell everybody else. Okay, okay you're pregnant. You can't have any wine because it'll hurt your baby. Jesus laid the groundwork. Okay, we've got, but, uh, drinking age here at this wedding is 21. If you're, if you're 21 or younger, you cannot drink this wine because this is the good stuff. Okay? You think Jesus, does that make any sense? Well, if he didn't do that, what'd he do? Yeah, take it over and party on. Hey, I brought the wine. You know, beer's on me. Whatever. No, I don't believe that for a second. All right, so let's keep going. So Jesus made wine. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus was a winemaker. And it's true. Jesus, he wasn't a bartender. He was a manufacturer. A good one. A big one. In a flash. No time required, no, no stirring, no yeast, no sugar addition, just bam, there it is in the pots, okay? Yeah, Jesus did that. Now, you can make that argument that Jesus was a winemaker, but before you make that argument, you be sure you understand wine, whether it's fermented or unfermented, it's the same word, oinos. You can say Jesus was an oinos maker, okay? Bottled and <laughs> bottled by Jesus, okay? So what was in the jar? What, what did King Jesus serve to a group of people that's been drinking until the stuff's all gone? It's speculation, pure speculation. So when you have a friend that says, oh, I believe he drank alcohol wine. I believe he served alcohol wine. You can believe that if you want to. I, on the other hand, will stand alone if I have to. And so I don't believe that for a fraction of a second. I don't believe Jesus ever presented, created, or presented alcohol wine at that wedding. In fact, I don't think Jesus ever consumed alcohol wine at that wedding, any other wedding, or any other thing he was at. Now, let me tell you why. Because we don't know what he drank, but we know who he was. We know this about Jesus. 1 Peter 2.22, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus was 100%, not 99.9 .9 proof. He was 100% perfect, sinless, without blemish. Had he had one sin on his record book, one sin in that column, it would have dis disqualified him from being the Savior of the world and the sacrifice on the cross for my sin and and your sin. Now, not only that, but Jesus, I believe, knew the Old Testament just like he spoke the New Testament because he was the Old Testament made flesh. He's the Word made flesh, right? I believe Jesus knew that Proverbs 23 had a strong warning that said, Look not upon the wine when it's red and when it moveth itself aright. Jesus, I think, knew what Habakkuk said. I bet you never saw this scripture before. And I believe Jesus knew what Habakkuk said. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink and makes him drunk. I believe Jesus knew Habakkuk. I believe Jesus knew what Habakkuk wrote. And I believe Jesus could not push back, distort, or go against any of that stuff because he's the spotless Lamb of God. In fact, Jesus said about his life, 
He says, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. He said, I didn't come to mess that up. He says, I came to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus came to complete, to put skin on what was given in Scripture. Okay? And, and so Jesus also knew that there was a priestly restrictions regarding alcohol. You say, well, that was Old Testament. Well, New Testament in Hebrews, we find out in Hebrews 3, 1, that Jesus is the high priest. He is the priest that did it right all the time. And this is what Jesus is the high priest as God himself with skin. This is what Jesus would know that, about a priest. It says in Leviticus 10.9, do not drink wine nor strong drink, you nor your sons with you. When you go into the tabernacle of the con congregation lest you die, it shall be a statute forever through all of your generations. Jesus came to this world to save it, not to stumble it. Jesus would know that Paul would write in Romans 14, 21, it's good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles <clears throat> or is offered or, or is offended or is made weak. And so I want you to know why I believe what I believe. And it's because I got statements from people who are much more intelligent than me who have done it a lot longer than me and have done it well. I have statistics that's always changing, and, and it's always growing, and it always reveals a problem with alcohol. We've got scripture that I think is, clearly says it's unwise. If there's no other reason that we should not drink is because the Bible said, says it is unwise to do so. And then I think we have our template, our model, who it is that we're supposed to strive to be like, and it is Jesus and so, I'll finish kind of with this. Why did Jesus do this thing, man? He tried to get out of it, didn't he? He said, I don't know what that has to do with me. But he did it anyway. Why did he do it? Why is the first miracle turning water into wine? What was gained by that other than a whole culture, a whole church culture who embraces it because that's what he chose to do? Well, the Scripture tells us why he did it. Scripture tells us the motivation of the miracle. In John chapter 2, which is one of the, one of the versions, one of the uh, gospel who writes about this, he says in verse 11, this beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was to manifest his glory. It was to reveal that Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, if his goal is to let everybody know I am God in the flesh. Would he do anything to mess it all up by being a stumbling block to a group at a wedding? No, you cannot believe that. Number two, the other motivation for doing this, it says, and his disciples believed in him. What Jesus did did not bring into question the fact of whether or not his disciples would believe that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They believed in him because of this. And if, and if what he did was create this alcohol to take back so people would get more inebriated, more intoxicated, if that's what he did, don't you think it would bring into question whether or not he's God? Oh, he must not have known then that it was going to cause people to stumble. Don't you think it would have brought into question whether the men who were up 
close and first pers- up close and personal with him would begin to question, is he really the Messiah? Because I mean, a whole lot of people got wasted because of the good stuff. I don't think so. So let me summarize and finish by saying this. And I'm going to read this because <laughs> I, I, want, I want you to hear my heart. It is pastoral love that moves me to a position of abstinence. And I will teach and I will preach and I will encourage the same to all of you who are under my protection and my leadership. I will not judge, but I will strive to let scripture be our primary source. I will avoid believing much of what the world has to say about all of our current topics, sexual identity, marriage, alcohol. I will not choose it to be my primary source. I will not judge you if you drink, but I would be delighted if no one in here ever did. I will not judge you if you drink, but I would be proud to say nobody at the Church of Sturkey Hills ever drinks alcohol. Let me tell you something, one of the motivations I talk about it all the time. I am so excited about our families who are having babies. All of you adults, you're old enough to make your own decisions. Let me tell you something, your child or your grandchild or your nieces or your nephews or even your spouse, let me tell you something, they will never ever hear their pastor say, drinking is okay as long as you can do it in moderation. I will never say that. So when they choose to do it at some point in the future, they will not say, Brother Joel said it was okay. So if you've got small children, you're going to be at a church where the preacher says, it's not the best choice you can make as a child or ever in your life. Nothing good becomes of it, ever. Not only that, your pastor's wife takes the same stand I do. You know, there's a lot of pastors in this world who have lost their ministry because of alcohol. Did you know there's a lot of pastors who have a wife who struggles with alcohol addiction? You will never hear that from Kendra, and you will never hear that from me. When it comes to Christian liberty, sure. One of the reasons people choose to drink is they say, I've been liberated. I'm no longer bound to the law. I'm not a legalist. I can do what I want to. Sure you can. But with liberty to choose to drink, you have the same liberty to push back against a world that says, let's do it. You have the same liberty to look at the world and say, I don't need that in my life. So, so you get to choose what, how you exercise your liberty. But let me tell you something about liberty. Liberty, your liberty is this big. The Bible says the greatest commandment has nothing to do with your liberty. The Bible says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love for others should always trump your liberty. And we live in a world that's consumed with alcohol. It's everywhere we go. Your liberty should free you up only so that you can live as a role model to those who are watching your life. And trust me when I say they are watching your life. Regarding moderation, you hear that? Oh, drinking's okay as long as it's moderate drinking. I contend that who knows what moderate drinking is? Who knows when you've had too much? Because everybody's different. 
the amount how alcohol affects you has has so many contingencies your weight your your uh your muscle fat ratio how much you've eaten uh health your 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 personal health the temperature i mean it goes on and on and on so who really knows so regarding moderation i say that moderately intoxicated is sinful Regarding moderation, I say moderate alcoholism is non-existent. Regarding a moderate stumbling block, I say it causes excessive stumbling. And so in all my years since I met Kendra, and she convinced me that I didn't need it in my life, if she was going to be in my life, I haven't done it, and I'm not missing anything. I'm not missing my job. I'm not missing my car, my driver's license. I'm not missing my job, my car, my driver's license. None of them. I'm not missing any of them. But let me tell you what I do have. I have joy that is overwhelming in my heart because it's not found in a beverage. It's found in a Savior, and His name is King Jesus. And listen to me, church. You can leave these doors and go to lunch and drink all you want to. I will not judge you. I will love you nonetheless. But I want to tell you as your pastor, If you want to know what Scripture is abundantly clear about, it's not good for your life. And it's not good for your testimony. And I don't think it's good for your relationship with the Lord. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes.